A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to engage in wrong think. But if I can just be perfectly honest here, I... Some days, I wish there was something different. I wish that there... I wish there was something different to talk about that... That didn't have to do with with having to resist groupthink and resist assimilation into the Borg of groupthink. And, and doggone it, COVID is driving it again. So here I am. Now, what I hope to deliver to you is uh, something that will leave you feel feeling uh, better informed, maybe a little bit encouraged that at least I have a better feel for for what is real versus, you know, whatever narrative is being spoon fed to me. But more importantly, I want you to understand we're living through very historic times. And that could be good or that could be bad. Ah, yes, we lived through the Black Plague. Historic times. Well, yeah, true. It was. I don't think this is the Black Plague. But I think that all the talk we hear about illness and particularly the coronavirus and all of the the heroic things that have been done, including those that didn't work. Lockdowns, I'm looking your direction. Masks, sorry. You know, it made people feel better, but may not have actually worked to slow the virus. Um, There's a bigger picture here. So I'm going to, at the risk of just, uh, you know, coming out as the extremist radical that I apparently am to some people, from the beginning... At least with the masking, my conscience was always uh, pinging me hard about the idea that there's more to this than just, well, you put the mask on and it protects you. Somewhere in the back of my mind was a question of, is this more about compliance? Is this more about trying to get people to, to outwardly demonstrate that I will obey I am a good person. I am an obedient citizen. I am a responsible person. Now, I'm not suggesting, by the way, that, uh, you know, the flip side of that coin is anybody who doesn't is selfish, irresponsible, or, you know, evil. But it always felt like this was a test of self-control, self-autonomy. And and, and will you allow others to to dictate to you, well, now, if you want to go out in public, you know, this is what you're going to have to do. And I only bring this up because it appears that uh, the same individuals, I wanted to say the word idiots, but I'm trying to keep this, you know, from devolving into name calling. The same individuals in various positions of power or trust who brought us the first series of lockdowns, who brought us, you know, the immense economic destruction, compounded it by dumping trillions of dollars into the economy. Hey, inflation, how does that work? Yeah. It worked so badly that they're going to bring it back for another try. I don't know what they're thinking. Maybe they're thinking, well, if we just try harder, if we just believe harder, this time it's going to work. But it's not. And and I'm, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to rub their noses in it. But isn't it obvious at this point the virus doesn't care? 
Whatever restrictions they put on people's travel, you must stay at home. You must do this. You must do that. And then this push for the vaccine. Look, if it's if you feel it's in your best interest to wear a mask to get the vaccine, do it. I'm trusting that, you know, if, if you feel it's in your best interest, you've probably done the homework or you've looked into it to where your curiosity is satisfied and you feel like, OK, this is the better way to go. But I'm not there. And part of the reason why I'm not there is because underlying all the, the good arguments now, now, Brian, masks work. And, you know, the, the vaccine has proven to lessen the symptoms. And there's still a lot of unanswered questions. And even with the unanswered questions, you know, it's possible I could be persuaded that, no, actually, actually it's in my best interest to, to go ahead and get the vaccine. But instead, what I am seeing and what is hardening my resolve to not be vaccinated and to not comply with any of the other mandates that appear to be coming back in masks and otherwise is the amount of coercion that is accompanying it now you could say well you're just being contrary and i don't know maybe maybe that's it it's possible i'm pretty fallible as anybody who knows me will attest i'm you know i make mistakes I, i don't have all the answers But I do have a pretty well-honed sense of when someone is either trying to manipulate or trying to spin the information to, to, to stampede the herd and create panic. And that's exactly what my gut is telling me. Got a pretty good gut, too. I've worked on that for years. A lot of table muscle if you get my drift. It's that coercion. And, and let's let's start with this. Okay, panic is a very proven tool for manipulating the masses. You present an enemy at the gates, or you present well, even better an invisible enemy that you can't see. It could be anywhere. It could be it could be with anyone. And yeah, people fall into line. Think about that infamous death toll ticker down there in the bottom corner of the TV screen on most of the news channels, especially CNN, over the last year and a half. Blood red in color. Ominous breaking news. Oh my gosh, look, this is terrible. This is the worst thing ever. Yeah, there was a lot of hype. Probably a lot of good psychology that went into it. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist, but they were definitely hitting a lot of the right buttons to get people in a state of panic. But now we're at a point where, yeah, I think, you know, I'm assuming that they're telling the truth. This Delta variant of COVID is actually much more infectious. Well, how infectious? So infectious that even people who just got the vaccine can actually go out there and give it to other people. Oh, that's that's pretty infectious. All right. But let's make sure we're blaming the unvaccinated, you know, for why they're they're able to do this. Even if they've been vaccinated, they can get it. Even if, you know, they are vaccinated, they can still pass it on. But hey, Let's maintain the illusion. It's just the unvaccinated, you know, who are, you know, causing this this surge in infections. But can we look at the death rate? What is the daily death rate like? Now, unless it's changed in the last 24 hours, that's the last time I looked at a chart. The death rate is the lowest that it has been since March of 2020. The daily death rate from COVID. So I don't doubt this virus is still killing people and it's primarily killing people who are already at the end of their lives or who have poor health in, com- in combination with being aged. 
And with those comorbidities, they, you know, are prey to some of the worst side effects. It does get a few younger people. But I believe 99 point something percent of the people who contract coronavirus still survive. Why are they working so hard to keep people in a state of panic right now? See, I, I'm debating, you know, how, how hard a stand do I take here? And, and I'm inclined to take the same stand that I have taken on gun control. And, and those who have listened to me for a while know this. If you're a new listener, I'll tell you. My status on gun control, or at least my take on it, is when somebody starts talking about, well, we need to ban this, or we need to regulate that, or we need to, you know, make sure that this is hard to get or it's unavailable, I don't care. Not that I wouldn't, uh, you know, speak up, you know, given the opportunity to, but I'm not going to get angry. And you know why? Because I made my mind up a long time ago. They can say whatever they want. I will call my own shots. I am a peaceful person, but I am fully capable of making those decisions about what I will or will not own, what I will or will not have injected into my body, what I will or will not wear on my face. So I'm thinking that may be the healthier approach to take, um, not to get angry, although I'll admit this, this raises my ire, probably just from the standpoint of, look, who do you think you are to suppose that you know better than I do what is best for my personal health? If I want advice, I'll go to somebody who I believe is competent to answer questions for me. Well, let me let me amend that competent and not beholden to somebody else's agenda, because some people are. And you don't always know until you get talking to them. But if I felt the need to get competent advice, I know where I can go. I can ask questions. I'm willing to do homework for myself, but I will not be forced. And if you believe, you know, that, uh, well, now, Brian, you've got you've to gotta respect other people. I do respect other people to make those decisions for themselves. They are absolutely free to make those calls for themselves. They are free to choose whether or not to wear the mask, whether or not to isolate, whether or not to get the vaccine. And I'm not going to blast them one way or the other. Well, you shouldn't do this. You should do this. Because you know what's best for your personal health. That's your decision to make. But if you'll forgive me for being just a little testy about this, if you want me to respect the people around me, then you damn well better respect my ability to make those decisions for myself. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thank you for letting me get that off my chest in the first segment. It's not that I'm looking for an outlet. Oh, that pent-up anger. I've got to let it go somehow. It's just a matter of... I think it may be some frustration because what I see approaching... Is something that uh, that some people see, but it seems like a tiny, tiny percentage of people who actually recognize what's coming on the tails of all of this concern and kerfuffle about, you know, uh, being protected from the coronavirus as if that is the single most important thing in life and always has been worlds without end. 
there are some pretty important things. And along the way, I've learned that one of the important things is I got to be free. I've got to do my part to maintain the freedom that other people have sacrificed and bled and died for over the ages. Because I want to make sure that my kids and my grandkids have a measure of that freedom as they move forward in life. So I guess the theme of this hour of the show today is dissent and learning how to speak up and, and to be that voice of dissent. As, it, as luck would have it, I found a remarkable article today on Twitter. This is from Julius Ruchel. Ruchel? I don't know how to say Julius's last name here, but what an amazing article. It's, it's very lengthy. So I'm including a link in the show notes and encouraging you, if you want to check it out, you can go to the com. It's going to take some time to read. This, this is like... Uh, it, it, you could probably spend an hour, maybe a couple of hours going through the various um, links within the article. But it's titled, The Emperor Has No Clothes, Finding the Courage to Break the Spell. And I'm not telling you have to do this, but I'm just I'm trying to make a suggestion and hopefully trying to persuade. Maybe consider that, that it's time to, to think about what would I do if I were to be a voice of dissent? Julius Ruchel says to all the silent good people watching our society tear itself in two, this essay is for you. Those in charge have long since signaled that they have no intention of returning to a liberal democracy founded on the recognition of inalienable individual rights and freedoms. By the way, inalienable, that means inherent, not government granted, not politician given, God given. He says, if data were the ingredient required to confront them, they would have folded a long time ago, but they're impervious to data. This isn't about a virus. This is a psychological game, and it's all about power and control. Okay, as a quick aside, let me give you an example of this. So a, a friend of mine earlier today on Facebook, um, you know, made this uh, statement about, hey, you know, I'm, uh, I, I, I don't really like to, to get political, and I don't like to, to bring these kinds of things out in the open, but, uh, you know, I'm just saying, get the dang shot. I'm taking a side here. I normally try to stay neutral. And my response to that was, well, okay, that's fine. No one's better qualified to make your decisions for your health than you are. Likewise, I'm the best qualified person to decide what's best for my health. So persuade me if you can, but don't attempt to coerce me. And someone misread what I said Apparently believing, hey, I would like to debate this. And so she threw a whole bunch of data at me. Now, masks work. And with anything new, there's going to be more info in science and blah, blah, blah. I work in healthcare, and nothing is going to be 100 percent. And whatever happened to this? And I mean, there's like 10 talking points here. Like I say, this person obviously confused. Well, obviously, I just didn't have enough data. Why? If you just hit me with all that data, of course, I'm going to have to change my mind. No. Because it's not just about the data. It's about what's the principle that's at stake here. Which is, whose choice is it? So I agree with Julius uh, Ruchel. This is a psychological game. This is about power and control. And since this individual who responded to me is working within the public health sector, I'm assuming that, uh, you know, that's that's part of what she's feeling is I got to make sure that I'm I'm steering you in the right direction. Okay, 
I don't know if there's a particular direction I want to steer anybody. I'm not telling you don't get the virus or don't get the vaccine. Sorry, that's an interesting Freudian slip right there. Don't get the vaccine or don't, you know, wear the mask. But I'm telling you the compliance is what leads to more of these inane lockdown policies, more of this flexing of control over every aspect of your life. It's what tempts people in power to make that determination. Hmm, you? Non-essential. You stay home and let the essential people do their work. I mean, we saw what this did. More importantly, we saw that none of it changed the course of the virus. Places that locked it down hard and stayed locked down hard long after everybody else lifted their lockdown policies still fared pretty much the same as everybody else when it came to the path that the virus took. It has to become endemic to bring on the herd immunity. The vaccine may help, but official pronouncements mean nothing to a virus. Back to the article. In this brave new world, the regime will grant temporary conditional privileges tied to virus seasonality, good behavior, or whatever other conditions they choose to set to achieve the social engineering agenda of the day. Once they opened Pandora's box to a society based on conditional rights, there's no limit to where their imaginations will take them. Now, I know it's tempting. I knew it. I knew it. I didn't know it. But I strongly suspected it at the time. And it's why I personally chose not to mask up wherever possible. Now, there were times in the course of working a part-time job where I had to put on a mask. That was a condition of employment. So, to meet my bills, to do what I had to do, that was one of the unpleasant things that I had to engage in. And I hated it, every single moment of it. I don't know, maybe that would make some people happy. Good, I hope you did. But do you see the inconsistency in your approach? If you're, you're actually wishing bad things on me, I hope you get COVID. I've had people wish that, too. How do we stop this neo-feudal reimagining of society? Asks Julius Ruchel. How do we play chicken with a regime that appears to hold so many of the cards? At this point, it's clear that regaining our freedom depends entirely on the government losing the support of the crowd. To use the words of Hans Christian Andersen's timeless folktale from 1837, we need to shake our frightened fellow citizens out of their stupor by getting them to see that the emperor has no clothes. But more importantly, we need everyone who sees it to be willing to say it out loud. And from here, this essay goes into a a brilliant dissection of the psychology of dissent. Now, I'm not going to have time to go through the whole thing, so I'm just going to hit a couple of the key points here. Uh, He talks about winning hearts and minds, how to open the mind to doubts. That's not the same as destroying someone's foundational beliefs in life. As much as it's just opening them to the possibility, there may be more that that could contribute to your understanding of the bigger picture. Whether it changes your mind, that's up to you. But first, they got to believe that uh, maybe there's more information they haven't yet ascertained that could change the way they see it. He talks about the glimpse of two futures, breaking the illusion. An excellent study of the Ash Conformity Experiments. He talks about the 10% rule and the counter-chorus. By the way, the counter-chorus, that's, that's what you're listening to right now. I am part of the counter-chorus. And, of course, TikTok, not the app, but actually the clock ticking. Show yourselves while there's still time. It doesn't do any good. 
to become a dissenting voice when when it's no longer possible to speak out because you'll be isolated, canceled, punished, who knows, maybe imprisoned. He talks about how to tame a wild horse, including the principles of paying freedom forward and why some wild horses can never be tamed. And this article goes into with the first link the chain is formed and gives you some great history, like the shadow of the barbecue rebellion, the price of leaving churches undefended. Who will stand up for Dr. Francis Christian and for academic independence, as well as the soft underbelly of the regime is exposed. I know, that's a lot to dig into. How important would it be to you at the end of your life to know that when it was counted, when it really counted, you were one of the people who was willing to stand up and acknowledge the emperor had no clothes? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I need to give a quick shout out here to my sponsors, and I do have some great ones. I want to include my friends at MonticelloCollege.org, PureLight-com. It's actually pure, a dash sign, then light.com. LifesavingFood.com. You've heard me talk about this. Man, I'll tell you, if you, uh, if, if you want to lay up a little bit of peace of mind and security for your future, click on the link in my show notes, lifesavingfood.com, and just check out what they have to offer. I'm confident if it's something that you can use, you'll know, you know if the time is right to, to make that purchase. HSLAmmo.com and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. While you're there, you can also subscribe to the podcast. You can even consider becoming a regular monthly supporter of this show which I greatly appreciate because it frees me up to uh, to do what I do, which is uh, hopefully disseminate information that is worthwhile and helpful to you. So I've got this article, The Emperor Has No Clothes, basically finding the courage to break the spell. And I want to give just a couple excerpts, and then I'm going to move on here. Um, this talks about how data plays an important role in changing hearts and minds, but only as a secondary ingredient, because we're fighting a psychological battle, not an intellectual one. So data helps those who start to ask questions, but the first thing they have to do, they have to ask questions. And for that to happen, there has to be a seed of doubt. Data will not plant that seed of doubt. It doesn't have the power to break the spell that people are under. And I thought this was interesting. Julius Ruschel says, A frightened mind seeks certainty because certainty feels safe. Which is why a frightened mind rejects anything that undermines the feeling of certainty. Uncertainty is scary. This desire for certainty makes people savagely hostile to conflicting data and capable of entertaining the wildest of logical fallacies. The facts simply don't matter to their feelings. But he says people only begin to seek out data after the spell begins to break. Something has to plant that first initial seed of doubt. And of course, you probably can relate. Uncertainty is uncomfortable, so it can't be pushed aside. If you can't push it aside, then and only then does your mind start to enlist rational thought processes to try to work through the dilemma, to try to work through the cognitive dissonance in order to regain a sense of certainty. That's the psychological game we need to play. 
We need to create the sense of uncertainty that forces our frightened peers to enlist their rational minds. Once the doubt sets in, the data should take them the rest of the way. So the willingness to look at data is just the second step along each individual's journey to recognizing that the emperor has no clothes. Now, much of our effort in this battle, he says, for our freedom has been focused on that second step, more data. But the first step on that path requires planting the initial seed of doubt. How do you seed doubt without data? I thought you would find this interesting. The simple reality is that this first step is fought with symbolism, with herd psychology, and the courage to bear the cost of speaking out when others will not. Navigating this first step is the focus of this essay because that's where we're falling short. So to plant a seed of doubt and to help other people take that first step, it's not what you say that matters so much as your willingness to be seen saying it out loud in public in a way that allows you to be identified and counted and being willing to face the music when the world can see what you really think. In other words, when people disagree with you, you take the hits and you keep smiling. And saying it over and over again, relentlessly, until enough voices, vo- voices join in, rather, that the counter-chorus can no longer be dismissed as fringe. Doubt is created by breaking the illusion of consensus. Now, I want to share kind of a personal experience here with that. And, and I have to be careful because I don't want to, there are good people who I really don't want to throw under the bus. And so I don't want you to read more into this than, uh, than you know, I, I don't want people to, to get the idea that, oh, man, Brian, you really, you've got a, you've got an axe to grind. But it was so interesting for much of this last year. Uh, first of all, when attendance at church was uh, removed and turned into something that was online. That was interesting. But at the time, you know, it was understanding. Well, we want to keep people from gathering. We want to, we don't know how bad this virus is going to be. We don't want to overload the uh, the emergency rooms or ICUs. Okay, that makes sense. But when it came time for us to go back to attending church in person, I remember very well how it felt to be able to go back into the chapel to be back among the other congregants. And I, you know, I don't want to get weird on anybody here, but um, I really had missed that. I missed that fellowship. I missed that, that sense of belonging and, and just, you know, I, I love my neighbors. There, there are some really amazing people, but the conditions under which it was supposed to happen. Well, you know, masks are recommended and masks are, you know, strongly recommended and we got to disinfect the chapel before and after after every you know service and you can't linger and every other row is blocked off no hymn books nothing you know no shaking of hands or anything like that and i was one of the only people other than maybe a little kid like a 2 year old that wasn't wearing a mask that first sunday back there may have been others but but i was i was uh I was catching some pretty concerned looks from the people in my congregation. And and I don't want to make it sound like I'm such a victim. They all looked at me with mean eyes. They weren't. Nobody was looking daggers at me. But I could see the concern on their faces. And as the weeks went by, and, you know, we would attend every other week, and then finally it was, okay, now people can go back generally to church. The masks were still a big part of that attendance. And it's in, in my mind, and I could be dead wrong, it seemed to morph into something that was going beyond just, a, well, this is a safety precaution to this is an outward symbol of my obedience. This is an outward symbol of my righteousness. 
And I don't know that everybody had that idea. I'm not trying to impute that to them, but I know some did. How? Well, because there were people who got up and spoke from the pulpit and talked about how important it is that we follow all the guidance and all the all the you know uh, rules that are being given to us, even if we don't agree with them. And there's maybe three people in the whole chapel not wearing masks. But boy, I'm telling you, when you're one of them, that is uncomfortable. I could especially see it in the eyes of the leadership, the, the leaders of our, our local congregation there. How could I see it? They couldn't look me in the eye. They couldn't even acknowledge my existence when I wasn't wearing a mask. You want to hear something weird? When they would come into the convenience store where I was working, where I was required to wear a mask as condition of my my employment there, they were all buddy-buddy. Hey, how's it going? It's so great to see you and whatnot. But when I was anywhere else without that mask... I guess I was breaking the illusion of consensus. And that, that, in their eyes, put some doubts on, well, where does he stand? What's, what's he doing? Now, I'm not holding a grudge, but I will tell you, that's an awkward place to be. It's uncomfortable. So I understand why not everybody wants to be the one who's willing to speak up and be seen and identified as not being on board with a particular policy or something. Back to the article. The first seed of doubt happens on a subconscious emotional level, a deeply subconscious emotional level. And there are three different ways that it can happen. Many can, many only start to ask questions after getting their first COVID vaccination. And as they begin to feel safe, they regain their ability to think, which gives rise to questions and doubts. That's one of the reasons why the regime is creating a hyperventilating drumbeat about variants and stoking hysteria about the unvaccinated. They're trying to keep the vaccinated in fear in order to prevent them from regaining their ability to see clearly and think independently. Also, doubt can be created when someone's personal experience doesn't match the propaganda that they've been fed. And the regime is fighting that part of the battle for us. When someone is injured by a vaccine or they see a loved one trapped in the isolation in a a nursing home or they're at risk of losing their business to lockdowns, doubt in the narrative starts to creep in. And there's only so much pain that anyone can bear before their certainty in the regime starts to waver. And doubt can be created simply by depriving someone of the illusion of consensus. This takes us back to Hans Christian Andersen's folktale. It was a child that broke the illusion because the child was unafraid to say out loud that the emperor's fine gown didn't exist. He was wearing nothing at all. Data didn't break the illusion. All it took was a pointed finger, a well-timed laugh and the courage to speak out. Doubt creates conflicting emotions that can only be resolved by enlisting the rational mind. Doubt leads the mind to seek out data, not the other way around. And the regime is doing everything it can to prevent the fearful from thinking. That's why this is a psychological war. Pretty powerful stuff. Again, you'll find a link in the show notes. That's all I'm going to share from this essay today. But it is worth your while if you are one of those people who knows in your heart there's a good reason why I should not be going along with everything that the experts at the CDC or the White House or the governor's office or even well-meaning people on social media are harping on me to do. Above all, remember whose decision it has to be and take it seriously.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to Patriot Home Mortgage and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. It's such an incredibly, uh, I don't even know the right word, dynamic. There we go. Dynamic real estate market right now throughout much of the Intermountain West. If you are looking to buy a home, if you're moving to that area and looking to buy a home, you've got to have your financing squared away before you find that dream home, because it's not going to be there when you come back. If you go, well, we'll go start the paperwork. You need to have it done. You need to know what you have at your disposal. And the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is there to get you squared away in a timely fashion. VA loans, traditional loans, reverse mortgages, they have the stability and the clout to help you get the loan you need without delay. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. Of course, Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Call them at 435-703-4522 or stop by 619 South Bluff Street in St. George to visit the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. All right, moving on. A couple other things here worth mentioning. Let's talk for a moment about the uh, about the CNN death toll. Robert Wright, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, says CNN and other alarmist mass media outlets have been implicated in the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Americans, but nobody seems to care, including those outlets themselves. He says throughout the pandemic, CNN and other cable news networks deliberately induced panic in order to boost their ratings. And the CDC recently revealed anxiety is the second most important contributing factor to death from or with COVID. Mass media pundits may have been as deadly as masses or mass meetings. Anxiety, you see, suppresses the immune system, meaning it makes panicked people more likely to contract and spread COVID and other infectious diseases and less able to fend off those nasties once infected. It stands to reason, then, that outlets that remain laser-focused on facts like the American Institute for Economic Research that stressed moderate policies like the Great Barrington Declaration saved lives to the extent that despite suffering sundry forms of censorship, they were able to calm anxieties. So he takes CNN to task, first of all, by saying it's now notorious that its producers were caught on tape admitting that their infamous death ticker was a cynical ploy to boost ratings. Producer Charlie's Chester told his fake Tinder date that fear really drives numbers, which is why we constantly have the death toll on the side. That video is such a smoking gun, by the way. It's technically illegal in Massachusetts, and other states have effectively outlawed the Second Amendment. (laughs) Chester admitted that constantly displaying the seemingly increasing number was not to inform audiences, but to get them to keep tuning in. Network president Jeff Zucker said Chester said he used a red phone to tell producers to ratchet up the numbers for ratings effect. Now, Robert Wright says it remains unclear why anyone would watch cable news for any reason, but people did tune in in large numbers and many found themselves made anxious by the spectacle they saw to the point that some semi-responsible mass media outlets like the BBC questioned whether remaining information or whether remaining informed rather was worth the emotional costs of the nonstop COVID death cult coverage. 
If people had known about the close link between anxiety and death, they most certainly would have turned off the boob tube, and maybe the few news executives who still have souls would have toned down the death and despair angle, too. Then-President Edward Stringham knew nothing good would come of the hype and ordered TV coverage turned off in AIER offices during working hours. Now, he talks about uh, how, secondly, the CDC, the putative science, has established that anxiety was linked to COVID-19 infection and death. In a study released on July 1st titled Underlying Medical Conditions and Severe Illnesses Among 540,667 Adults Hospitalized with COVID-19, March 20. To March 2021. I'm sorry, March 2020 to March 2021. A score of PhD and, M- and uh, medical doctor researchers show that the strongest risk factors for death were number one, obesity, and number two, anxiety and fear related disorders. I've heard my good friend Ralph DeLugas make this comment many times, and, and it just makes sense. Fear invites disease into your life. Fear weakens your body, weakens your mind. Now, specifically, the obese people were 30% more likely to die if they contracted COVID, while people suffering anxiety were 28% more likely to pass away. In other words, Robert Wright says, being anxious was nearly as deadly as being fat. Now, the authors point out, however, the exact causal relations between anxiety and death with or by COVID-19 remains unclear and may include a reduced ability to prevent infection among patients with anxiety disorders, the immunomodulatory or cardiovascular effects of medications used to treat these disorders, or severe COVID-19 illness exacerbating anxiety disorders. In any event, sitting around watching CNN while stress eating was hardly a recipe for immune system health. And that points to one of the many bizarre aspects of the public health policies promulgated during the pandemic. The almost complete lack of calls for improving immune health, which can be greatly augmented through proper diet, exercise and attitude. Instead, many lockdown policies served to limit exercise and many who tried to discuss vitamins found themselves attacked and censored. In fact, Robert Wright says as clinically nearly useless and environmentally harmful mask mandates begin to creep back into policy discourse, it is important to point out that individual measures, including losing weight and boosting natural immunities, is a much more effective way of staying safe from all sorts of maladies than top-down policies. Listen to your personal doctor, not Dr. Fauci. (laughs) Sorry, it took me a second to realize who he was talking about. And for goodness sake, read rational sources of news or better yet, listen to them while getting some exercise. Oh, and eat a lemon instead of watching one. Pretty good stuff. One final note here, and this is uh, this is from Brad Palumbo at the Foundation for Economic Education. The push is on to extend one of the federal government's worst pandemic power pandemic power grabs. He's talking about the. Uh. Eviction moratorium, so-called, initially implemented by Congress in March 2020 and then drastically and unilaterally expanded by the Centers for Disease Control back in September last year. Yes, under the Trump administration, it made tenants below a certain income threshold immune from eviction if they didn't pay their rent so long as they provided written notice and cited certain excuses. Landlords who violate the moratorium were threatened with fines of up to $100,000 in jail time. But they were, however, still allowed to evict tenants under a narrow set of circumstances like tenants who engraved, engaged rather in uh, criminal activity or endangered public safety. 
Then in January of 2021, the Biden administration took control and once again extended the supposedly temporary nationwide dictate. Now, that moratorium is supposed to lapse tomorrow, July 31st. But Washington politicians are mobilizing to renew the order. Biden has called on Congress to pass legislation expanding it. The Supreme Court suggested it cannot be renewed unilaterally. Meanwhile, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi has said that extending the eviction moratorium is a moral imperative. But despite politicians' lofty rhetoric, renewing this drastic measure would be an enormous mistake, says Brad Palumbo. For one, he says the so-called moratorium was always a constitutionally suspect power grab. Just think about this. The director of the CDC, an unelected bureaucrat, cited one vague law to unilaterally issue a mandate essentially seizing millions of landlords' properties and subjecting those properties to unpaid occupation. It's as if the CDC ruled that anyone could go to a grocery store, fill up their carts, and walk out without paying. It effectively canceled people's contracts and seized their property, and it did so without providing them the just compensation required by the takings clause of the Constitution. Congressman Thomas Massey lamented on Twitter, CDC inserting itself into private rental contracts, effectively transferring control of private property from the lawful owner to the renter, is possibly the most socialist action our government has taken in decades and without an act of Congress. Rental contracts are governed by state law. There is no federal authority to overturn them. The CDC order is an affront to the rule of law. By the way, Senator Rand Paul backed him up, saying the CDC does not have authority to do this. It's a dangerous precedent and bad policy. So from the get-go, the eviction moratorium was a bad idea and a dangerous power grab, but it also created an economic catastrophe and unfairly burdened an entire class of Americans. Brad Palumbo says the longer the moratorium continues, the more this dysfunction magnifies. And, of course, that only gives politicians more incentive to expand it into perpetuity to avoid having to face the fallout from their poor policy decisions. The ultimate loser from such cowardice, though, is American taxpayers. Remember that the next time you hear the word temporary attached to a proposal for a new government program. Of course, you will find links to all of these articles in today's show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. I'm not telling you you have to be a voice of dissent, but if you can look around and ascertain, hey, things are not right, wouldn't you agree that we kind of have a duty to speak up while we're able to speak up and warn the people around us? This is The Brian Hyde Show.